heartfelt expression of her love and our love for you. Uh, Lord, you said in your word that God is love, and uh, we love because you first loved us. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit uh, and your truth would rise up in our hearts and that we would uh, give our full love to you. We pray for these young ones as they go to Friends of Jesus, that you would speak your love more deeply in their hearts through their teachers, and that, God, you would meet us here as well through your servant, uh, Steve Estes, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're honored uh, today to welcome to our pulpit uh, pastor Steve Estes. He's the pastor of Elverson Community Church in Elverson, PA. A uh, good friend of mine all the way back to high school days. Uh, this past week, I'm, I was supposed to be, as you look in the bulletin, uh, in the pulpit today. And uh, I went to a conference uh, in Charlotte on uh, the leadership on the, on the multi-ethnic church. And I was preparing myself to preach. St uh, Steve found out that I was uh, at this conference and he was off this week. And he just happened to offer his his services to preach in the pulpit. And uh, I first said, no, I've got this, you know, I've been, been preparing, studying. And then after, um, after thinking about it, I said, well, I need to at least run this by our elders in our session. And if I were to plan or to ask for someone to step in this pulpit and to preach on the word of God and comfort, I couldn't have planned a better speaker to step in to this uh, for this particular message. Uh, Steve uh, was the lanky, tall high school guy at Woodlawn High School that uh, discipled Johnny Erickson to die uh, after she jumped into the Chesapeake and dived and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic, and she was searching for questions. Uh, and she was looking for someone who knew the Bible. And she heard about this guy, Steve Estes, uh, who'd been a, a student of the scriptures from his early days uh, in elementary and middle school, uh, reading commentaries. And uh, his father gave him uh, an encouragement in the scriptures. And so uh, through Steve Estes, uh, he helped Johnny find a theology of suffering that helped her not just to survive, but to thrive and become a, a very major gospel force in the world. Um, and so I'm honored. Uh, he's written with Johnny, uh, When God Weeps, uh, and it's a book that I would recommend, and probably a key reason that I am still uh, serving in a pastorate and has kept me uh, going is because Steve and Johnny have provided uh, me a, a deep anchor in the theology of suffering. So we'd like to welcome to the pulpit. Steve Estes, his wife Verna is here. We're grateful to have them in our house. I guess the word beauty is what's running through my head up here. First was the beauty of that song that these musicians and Kelly just sang. Years ago, I heard a man say that it's the job of Christians not only to show the world that Christianity is true, but to show the world that it's beautiful. And that was a st 
stunning use of words and music to do just that. The other beauty I see in this room are those two people sitting down here in the front row. I have the highest love and respect a person can possibly have for Craig and Maria Garriott. The way these people have helped my wife and me in our lifetime, and the way that God has used them to come here and be a part of this church from the beginning. I don't know if you all know this, but aside from the church where I pastor in Pennsylvania, the church on the planet that I pray the most for is Faith Christian Fellowship. I have watched this church from a distance ever since its infancy and toddlerhood and adolescence and mature adulthood. I've followed the ups and the downs and the joys and successes and trials of this group. And I wish I could take a picture through my eyes right now so I would have it permanently to see your faces because you are in my heart very often. I'm so delighted to be here. I really am. I do have one, well, concern. I saw in the bulletin that for both services, at this point, just before the sermon, that all the friends of Jesus leave the room. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Craig, I forgot to ask what time I quit again. But I better just say that. Thank you. That's very nice. But really, what time do I quit? 12.30. Good. All right. Mm. I think it was the fish that first started turning my stomach. I had the occasion to be in Europe when I was a young man and was driving with a friend toward the tip of Denmark and miles before you got to the town at the end, which was a fishing town, many miles, you could begin to smell the fish. By the time the ferry actually came to take us across, I was already sick. Combined with the spilt beer on the floor of the ferry and the up and down and up and down of the ferry, I was about as sick as I had ever been. And as I sat there, hearing those foreign sounds of foreign languages on a bench hanging my head between my legs, there were two girls seated across from me, somewhat older than I was, and I could tell they looked at me with compassion because they could see the very shades of green that my face was turning. And I remember that then I heard them humming for a moment, and when I listened closely, I realized they were humming the tune, Amazing Grace. I did not speak Norwegian. They did not speak English. I just went, and they went, <laughs> and I realized they were believers. When the ferry reached Norway, I could not put one foot in front of another, and these two girls grabbed my heavy suitcases and trundled them down the gangplank for me out of compassion. Because they saw that I was struggling, and people are made in the image of God. And Christians doubly have that image renewed in them, and it gives Christians a drive to help people who are struggling. Now this is exactly true of the writer of the book of Hebrews, in which we looked this morning, who saw a group of Christians who were terribly struggling. These were Jewish Christians, very close to giving up on their Christianity because of all the hardships that they met. And he brings his argument to somewhat of a close, beginning in chapter 10, starting verse 33, which is where we'll read from right now. 
Hebrews 10, verse 32, I should say. Remember those earlier days, he said, after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property knowing that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, and here he quotes the Old Testament, quote, He who is coming will come. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. What do you get from a passage like this? I'll tell you the first thing that screams at me and jumps out is this that Christians tend to find it the easiest to be bold and full of faith early on in their Christian lives. Now you would think it would be just the opposite. That as we grow and our spiritual muscles strengthen, we find it easier to persevere. <clears throat> but it tends to be just the opposite. These people were Jewish Christians. That is, they had 2,000 years of Judaism behind them, a deep culture, a deep faith, and now they had come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the Messiah, and their neighbors and family could not believe it. You actually believe, their neighbors and family would say, that that two-bit, no-good, conniving, snake oil salesman from Galilee is actually the promised Messiah? And these Christians took a great deal of heat for that. They really did. And their friends had the zeal in their anger, not just of persecution, but of religious persecution, which as we know is the most zealous persecution on the face of the planet. Now, adding to the problem of the pressure from their neighbors trying to pull them back out of the belief in Jesus is the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, when he talked, although he was full of love, he had a penetrating message that tended to make people feel guilty. It shone the light on their sins. It made them uncomfortable and made them highly dislike the Savior. And now that these Jewish Christians had that very Messiah inside them, when they spoke, even when they acted with love and mercy, it tended to show in contrast the darkness in people's hearts who were not believers, and it made those unbelievers uncomfortable. So you had that that made their fellow Jewish people hostile to these early Christian Jews. And the result, we read in verse 32, was that they experienced great suffering. The apostles were jailed. The apostles were beaten. James, the great leader of the early church, was the first one put to the sword. Stephen was stoned to death. And eventually this led to all the believers being strongly persecuted because of their belief in the man from Galilee. 
And yet we know that they had not yet faced martyrdom because we read in verse 4 of chapter 12, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet shed your blood. What they were doing, though, is they were hanging on to the edge of the cliff by their very fingernails, really tempted to ask, is it worth it? It's getting too hard. The picture that we were seeing was both from words and from actions of the people surrounding them. Consider the words at first. Verse 33 says, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. This is very hard. The Bible says that with his mouth, the godless destroys his neighbor. And these Christians were being cut to the quick. They were being chopped off at the knees by the sharp tongues, the gossip, and the slander, and the finger-in-the-chest arguments that they had with their neighbors and with their friends. And beyond just the words that they were taking, words can give you an enormous amount of heat, was the tangible loss that they experienced. We read in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Now it seems that the majority of times this meant that the authorities were actually on trumped up charges finding a way to take away the homes right from under the feet of these Christians because they made the pagan world and the Jewish world so very angry. But beyond this kind of legal confiscation, I imagine it's talking about when these Christians would go on a business trip, let's say, they would come back and their homes had been broken into and plundered. Maybe graffiti scribbled all over the outside. I've never had my house broken into. But I've had friends who have. And they say the sense when you come home of violation is so strong. People have rifled through your drawers and your clothes and your checkbook. And it feels just awful. And it's hard to shake for a long, long time. This is what these Christians were experiencing there because of their belief in Jesus. And it was getting hard. And yet we read in verse 32 of their courageous reaction, at that time you stood your ground in a contest in the face of suffering. That is, they kept their faith in God strong. They were still bold to speak to their unbelieving neighbors. So in, in some of them, what we're saying is, these people, back in the day, showed real courage. However, the courage they showed at the beginning got harder. Because for Christians, and here's the second major thing we learn, persevering in faith and obedience and godliness gets harder as time goes on rather than gets easier. And it was certainly so with these people. Their early courage showed, but it's early courage that the passage talks about. Verse 10, I mean verse 32 says, remember those earlier days when you stood your ground in a great contest of suffering. That is, soon after they became a Christian. Now, if you became a Christian in childhood, the difference may not have seemed great to you. But if you became a Christian as a teenager, or particularly as an adult, and particularly if your lifestyle was highly anti-Christian beforehand, you know that becoming a Christian is like being, well, born again. It's like spring after winter. It's like new love. It's like a little kid who is in his living room, that's all the world he knows, and then suddenly he looks out the window one day and he goes, oh, there's a yard out there. And so he has a whole yard to explore, and after a while, exploring the yard, oh, 
But these Christians had the courage to stand with people who were suffering and risk themselves and their own reputations and even their own freedom to make these things happen. Well, but early faith is a strong faith where you have a lot of zeal and a courage to speak the Bible. Particularly teenagers have a courage sometimes to say things in crowds that are really tough. But later on, it becomes more and more difficult. And more mature Christians often have a fear and a hesitancy and a weariness and tiredness to persevere in the faith that just drains them. And so these readers must be told things like verse 32. Remember those earlier days. Or verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence. A picture that comes to my mind is somebody cleaning out her attic. And she's going through junk and getting rid of grandma's old stuff. And here's an old piece of paper, document. I don't know. Let's get rid of that. Only later to find it was an original copy of the Constitution of the United States worth millions. He's saying, you have treasure that you have no idea the worth of. And you're tempted to toss it away. Oh, you'd be sorry if you ever grasp the value of what you have. You need, he says, verse 36, to persevere. Persevere. Not long ago, I was riding in a car with our 20-year-old son. And as we ran down the street, a squirrel ran across the road in front of us. And the squirrel was largely across, and my son said, I know exactly what that squirrel's thinking. What's that? He said, that squirrel is thinking, oh, I'm 90% across. Here comes a car. Better turn back. (laughs) Because that's how squirrels think. And these Christians, many of them, 90% of the way across, exhausted, thinking, let's turn back. Anybody in this room can relate to what I'm speaking of? I would think so. Well, verse 38 says that the righteous person needs to live by faith. Because the longer you go, the harder it is to grasp, really, that God is there. You can't feel him. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, you've touched the scars. Blessed are you, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Faith is so important. Now here's a question I have to ask. Why do you think it becomes so difficult over time to keep going as a Christian, whereas at the beginning you often have an extra push or juice or gas in your tank. Several suggestions I'd like to make. One is this. One is due to the cumulative nature of trials. These people over time, they're getting worn down day by day in the grinding mill that's turning their seed into powder. Yeah. If you and I could switch skin, and I could live in your skin, and right now feel the stress or the strain or the trial that you are going through this very morning. What I could not experience is that you have been going through the same or similar things for days, weeks, months, maybe years, and for some of you, for decades. That is what is absolutely crushing to a person, is over time suffering. That's what these people were going through. And they're about to let their fingers go and to drop off the cliff into the sea of eternal loss. 
That's one of the reasons. We used to sing a song <clears throat> when I was growing up in church. It went like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Anybody know it? Second verse, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. We sang that in church and chirped that endlessly. And none of us have been persecuted a day in our lives. <laughs> it was all before 9-11. It was all before ISIS. It was all before somebody had a child grow up to totally reject the Christian faith and run away from God endlessly. It was all before somebody's spouse had walked out and left her alone with the children. It was all before someone's closest friend was diagnosed with terminal cancer having a month to live. It was all before someone lost their dream job and had to take employment the rest of their lives at half salary. It was all before a person did something stupid, found themselves in prison with a record, and now could not get employment, even though it was just a one-time thing. It was all before anybody really suffered, and therefore it was easy to sing. But over time, there's a cumulative effect. Job, you recall, lost his worldly goods, he lost all his animals, and he lost all his children to death. What did he say when he lost them? He said the following. I brought nothing into this. Naked I came into this world, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job chapter 1. By the time you get to Job chapter 19, here's what he says. God has wronged me. Why? The cumulative weight of suffering on this man. The second reason why it gets harder as we go along is this. It seems to me that God gives special grace to young believers. Often to people who are brand new Christians, he gives a felt sense of his presence that is often euphoric. Uh, it's like, well, it's like being a child. You're young in life. I remember as a child, I was amazed at how kind many girls were to me. You go down to the nurse's office in school because you felt a little sick, and you say, oh, tell us about it. Oh, sit down. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me take your temperature. Just open up like, yes, you're a nice boy. Sure, we'll try to get you physical. Why don't you just lie down comfortably there? Why is she being so nice to me? And then later on, then, you meet a nice friend of your mother's. Oh, Stevie, how are you doing? You're a nice boy. Talk to me. So, you know, my friends talk to me like this. What's the deal? Why are you doing this? Well, people knew you were just a kid. They were trying to encourage you because you had a whole life in front of you. Little kids are like little sparks that need a little, little blowing to get the embers to come into a flame. Well, that's what God does with you when you first become a Christian. He encourages you with all kinds of little emotional sense of his presence that's wonderful. And then over time, what he does is this. Over time, he does what an airplane pilot instructor does. An airplane pilot instructor will take you and teach you the very basics. Hi, here's the key to open the door. Hi, this is a ring. This is a wheel. Here's the instrument panel. This is, and you describe things little by little, and there you go, and you learn to fly. And all the way after you become quite competent with this, one day he says to you, now today, we're going to start learning to fly 
strictly by the instruments. That is, on a foggy day where you cannot trust your senses how to fly based on these dials. And then he starts to teach you the danger of operating a plane according to your five senses when the weather does not permit and how you must trust what the dials say. And so God did this to the Hebrew Christians and he does it to you. To anybody in this room, I want you now to learn to fly where you have no felt presence of God and your senses scream to you, he's not hearing any of your prayers, he doesn't care anymore, he's looking the other way, and you're on your own. That's how he does it. And because God does this for young believers and treats them differently from the old, that's why it's so hard as you go on. Thirdly, it seems to me, the reason why it's harder as you go on is that God values faith so highly. He calls it more precious than gold. Why? Well, don't you like to be trusted? When you say to someone, I'll be there, I'll be there at 3 o'clock, you really need to be there, I will be there, don't you want people to trust you? If you say to somebody, I'm good for the money, don't you want them to believe you? God does too. The Bible says that angels and demons are impressed looking at the way people serve God. This is in Ephesians. And the idea is that when angels and demons watch Christians serving a Lord who allows them to carry a cross that's so hard it would crush a man or woman, angels and demons say, what God must be like that these people are willing to go through that and trust him even though he does not seem to answer their prayers and they cannot see him. That's why it becomes harder as time goes on. Faith, 1 Peter 1.7 says, is of greater worth to God than gold. Well, how then does the writer of Hebrews motivate these suffering Jewish Christians to continue? Oh, here's what's interesting. He reminds them of what they already know. And he does it by quoting for them the Bible. The writer of Hebrews, writing the Bible, quotes the Bible. Do you see the huge weight that God our Father puts on what he has written in this book to get people through their hard times. He quotes first from the book of Isaiah. He does this in verse 37 where he says, something is going to happen, quote, in just a very little while. I know your fingernails are about to come off from your fingers. Believe me, it's not going to last forever. Something will happen in a very little while. He's quoting, it almost seems, actually alluding to, I would say, uh, from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20, which says this, Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed. And then after quoting Isaiah to them, he turns and he quotes Habakkuk to them. Habakkuk who wrote knowing that the Babylonian Empire was going to crush the Jewish people and wondering how would God let this happen. And so God gives a vision that the Babylonians in turn will be crushed and the Jews will be delivered. So the writer of Hebrews in verse 37 says, quoting Habakkuk, he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
He takes that vision of judgment coming to the Babylonians and he inserts Christ into it, that Christ is coming, will judge the persecutors of the Christians and will liberate those Christians into total freedom. The point is this. These are Hebrew Christians. They have read the book of Habakkuk. They know well the book of Isaiah. They could probably quote some of these passages. But for all of us, the problem is not that there are passages in the Bible, perhaps, that we haven't read. We may have read them many times. We may have devotions every day. We may have read through the Bible on multiple occasions. The point is that what we read, we so soon forget and disbelieve. It comes into our eyes, and within minutes it is oozing out of our ears onto the floor, and we lose it all. And so what he does is take passages that we're very familiar with and says to them, Have you forgotten? Christian, have you forgotten what God promises you? What he says to you? And he gently reads it again. Now his word from the Old Testament scripture is both a negative help and a positive help. Negatively it's this, verse 38. He says, If they shrink back, that is, if they give up Christianity, God will not be pleased. Some of them will lose their salvation that they never really had in the first place. He says to these Hebrews what he would say to this congregation here. There are people who think they are Christians because they know the doctrine in their head and they sing the songs and they pray the prayers, but they have never really repented of their sins and believed on the cross. And on that great day, what will happen is they will find that the pressure of this life will cause them sooner or later to back away from real Christianity. I cannot tell you the people in our church over the last 35 years whom I thought were some of the finest Christians I have ever known who now in no way claim the Christian faith and advocate either another religion or spirituality of some bizarre occult type or something else. It happens all the time. Others among that congregation, just like could happen in a Christian church here, they will not totally leave the faith, but they will so grow dim in their love for Christ because the pressure of this world will cause their Bible to sit on the shelf, their prayers not to be given, their fellowship not to be entered into, that they will live a life fairly distant from Jesus, will go to heaven, but will be saved, saved, quote, as one snatched from the flames at the very last second. And as heaven's gates close, they'll just get in, the gates will close, their clothes will smell of the smoke of hell, but they will be saved, and they will lose rewards all over the place because of the distance in which they followed Christ and how they shrank back, and God was not pleased with that. But then God implies positively in this passage that by Habakkuk saying, if you shrink back, I will not be pleased, what's the strong implication the other way around? If you don't shrink back, he will be very pleased with you and with those people. And so he says in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who believe and are saved. Am I speaking to any suffering Christian in this room? Yeah. And if they persevere, Verse 35, you will be richly rewarded. And if they persevere, verse 36, you will receive what was promised. And in verse 34, if they persevere, you will have better and lasting possessions that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. And so, here's what it looks like. Here's a guy on a desert island. His boat has capsized, and he has drifted, hanging on to some 
floats him or deaths him, and eventually winds up on a deserted island. No one knows he is there. For years he's there. And so he cobbles together sticks and makes his little hut with little vine branches and little big palm leaves, and, and he takes together a little pathetic little fire pit. He has a primitive little tool that he's gotten from some stick and he uses the vine to attach to the end of it some stone that he scrapes against another stone and tries to make it halfway sharp. And he lives in this primitive subsistence way for years. Finally, one day, a plane flying overhead sees the smoke coming, calls in a boat, and rescuers come. And now, he's on the edge of the beach, about to get on a pontoon boat, back to the major ship and back home. And as he's about to step off the beach, he turns around and he looks longingly back at what he had. The only friend he had was a volleyball named Wilson. And he looks and here's a hut, half crumbling. Here's a stone tool that can't cut through melted butter. Here's a vine that's rotting with worms. Here is just absolutely nothing, and he looks longingly at the things that gave him some small subsistence or comfort in life. And the sailors say to him, Sir, have you forgotten what home is like? Have you forgotten what it's like to live in the United States? It is infinitely better than what you have here. Let it go. And so the apostle looks to these Christians who are tempted to give all of this coming to them because of the heat they're experiencing right here, and he says, let it all go. Keep running. What is in front of you is so infinitely better, you cannot even imagine it. You are tired today. Some of you have extreme pain. You have bad physical health. Your finances are crushing you. Some friend has broken your heart. Some family member has broken your heart. People have said things about you that are not true. People have cut you to shreds to your face with their words. You have lost things that are irreplaceable. Here's what the Bible says to you. Christian, don't think like a squirrel. You are almost there. Yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. And when he does, his soul will be pleased with you. Our Lord Jesus, help us believe these things. Give us the faith to go on. And we pray especially for the weakest, most tired Christian in this room, that you will grab him or her by the wrist and hold them in their grasp if it's too weak to grab your wrist and keep them in the faith and give them gas in their tank and wind in their sails and the ability to take the next step and go on, not leaping tall buildings in a single bound, but one step in front of another and the faith that deeply pleases you and may they be richly rewarded in heaven.